This is Monocle on Design, a show where we unpack everything from architecture and craft to furniture and fashion. I'm Nick Manise. On today's show, we talk with journalist and creative consultant Charlene Premper about her new book, Now You See Me. We also catch up with the creative director of fashion brand Form. Plus, we talk hospitable design with interior and furniture specialist Martin Brudnitsky. All that coming up on Monocle on Design. Charlene Premper is the founder of a vibe called Tech. The black-owned creative studio and consultancy encourages brands to consider a diverse range of cultural perspectives in their processes and products. Its clients include high-end labels such as Gucci and institutions like the Victoria and Albert Museum. This work leaves Charlene well-placed to comment on contributions of black architects, fashion and graphic designers to the creative industries at large. It's knowledge that she's now distilled in a new book called Now You See Me, an introduction to 100 years of black design. To find out more about the new publication, Monocle's Steph Chongu caught up with Charlene. She began by sharing where the idea for the book came from. I'd been having a conversation with our creative director, Lewis Gilbert, and a close friend and collaborator, Crystal Genesis, because we were working on a project for Gucci called Pioneers of the Past. It was about their collaboration with North Face, and we kind of thought about ideas around like explorers and people who push boundaries as a way of kind of connecting what Gucci and North Face do. And we're thinking, okay, who are people in kind of the black creative space who have done exactly that? And Crystal suggested Anne Lowe. I had no idea who she was talking about. It turned out that Anne Lowe was the fashion designer who designed Jackie Kennedy's wedding dress. And I'd never heard of her. And I was really shocked, like really shocked to my bones that I'd never heard of her. And Lewis pointed out that it's not a surprise at all because lots of black creatives are missing from the design canon in terms of like, public knowledge. Um, and so the idea of the book stemmed from there. There is a very prevalent issue of lack of books celebrating black creatives. I think in the past five years alone, the only books I've noticed myself personally is the memoir of Edward Enifal's The Visible Man, Andre Leon Talley's um, From the Chiffron Trenches, and the... Africa fashion um, book, which is which was adjacent with the V&A exhibition. There is an issue of lack of celebrating black creatives in print, which is hopefully a way of helping to, well, not solve, but to help with that issue. Now you see me. It's an introduction to many black creatives in the industry, and it spans over a hundred years. That must have been such a daunting task for you. Um, I wanted to know, was it research-based? Was it interview-based? Like, how did you come about, like, curating and finding so many creatives to fit in this exceptional book? Thank you for calling it exceptional. It wasn't easy, but what helped to make it manageable was that I wasn't trying to do, like, an encyclopaedia of black designers in fashion, architecture and graphic design. What I was trying to find were key themes and patterns and explore ideas and seeing what designers fit within those concepts. So, for example, there's one chapter called Free Kings um, and that has um, Willie Smith, Dapper Dan and Patrick Kelly, three black male designers. And it really was saying, like, what is their legacy? Because other male designers of their era turned into big fashion houses, right? So like the Saint Laurent's, etc. 
Um, but then for some reason, when it was the kind of black males who were doing interesting work, it never quite came to that kind of pinnacle of what you kind of want in terms of being a house. There's another kind of chapter on black female genius where I talk about Jackie Ormez. And again, that's exploring ideas about why it is that, A, people find it very difficult to bestow the term genius on any women. And then with black women, it's even more problematic, right? So that's what allowed for the curation. Who are the designers that fit into that theme versus like what for every designer who's done interesting work in that era? The three major sectors that you focus on is fashion, architecture and graphic design. Why do you think that we don't hear enough of black creatives in architecture and graphic design? Because we we hear we see and hear a lot of the pioneers in fashion, of course, um, Bianca Saunders, uh, Telfer. But within architecture and graphic design, I, I had no idea that there were so many people within those two sectors. Why do you think that is? I think partly it's a barriers of entry question, right? In the, don't get me wrong, it's not easy to run a design company. It's near on impossible. But in theory, if I wanted to like make a jumper, start an Instagram, put that jumper up, like get orders, like I could like try and make that work. If I wanted to design a building and put it up, not so easy, right? And so I think the gatekeeping in architecture, so let's start there with architecture. The gatekeeping of architecture is, is more cemented and more, more difficult to jump over, should I say. So I think that's partly why I think there are less black architects in the space than there are fashion designers, but also it's more difficult to start your own thing and to be entrepreneurial about it. So a lot of the black architects who do exist are within an existing house because it's difficult to start up your own architecture practice in a way that I think is more difficult than starting up your own design, like fashion design label. The graphic design question is a really good one because there isn't a barrier to entry issue, right? But as someone who owns a creative agency, I still really struggle to find black graphic designers. And at the end of the book, I explore why that might be because I don't know why people don't enter the space. I think it's a question that I raise and one that I don't fully answer, but... I'm hoping it's getting better. There are groups like Where Are the Black Designers who congregate online and the studio who designed the book, Polymode, are very kind of multicultural. One of the founders um, is black for Polymode. So I think we're getting there, but um, there also aren't kind of superstar graphic designers in the way that there are superstar fashion designers. They're left in the public eyes. I think that helps to obscure them too. I want to talk about the highlights of um, the designers and the black creatives in Now You See Me. So Emery Douglas, American graphic artist, Minister of Culture of the Black Panther Party. I noticed that you wrote a very extensive feature on Emmett McBain, the graphic designer and art director for the Financial Times. When you were curating Now You See Me, did you notice that was there any like patterns of past work from these creatives that you see now in like current trends of marketing or like graphic design or fashion like that? So there's some really interesting things. Like John Owasu Addo was a architect, and he was doing work after Ghana became independent, and his work was very much around how you design for community, right? How you build in like social goals into the buildings that you're designing and um, putting up. And he kind of had this quote, which I love, which is, if you're not considering kind of social justice in your work, then you're just making pastry. 
Um, and I really love that. And if you look at what happened this year, actually, with the Venice Biennale for architecture, the group there were very much looking at what is space in the community. And I really love the idea that architecture has kind of come full circle in that way again, in a way that's really prominent and given value. Like obviously, that's what we, as the British Pavilion, that's what we presented. So I really, I love, I love the idea that that has kind of come full circle. I think also with some of the fashion designers, so looking at people like Patrick Kelly, especially, who was kind of really challenging things, so like using gollywogs in some of his visuals to basically as a way of exploring ideas of black oppression, but effectively trying to understand his culture, the life that he'd lived as a black man in America. And then if you look later on in the book when I'm talking about kind of Bianca Saunders and Telfer and how they're both bringing their culture to their work, that for me really feels like the way the arc has kind of come full circle as well. Oh, that's so promising. Um, were there any surprises or discoveries that you that stood out to you during curation of Now You See Me? Everything felt like a bit of like a what? Did that really happen? Who's that? Or did they do X or Y? I thought one which which was really funny because I kept on reading. Well, obviously, like some of like some of this stuff, I I like had ideas about, but didn't know kind of the details on. I kind of known a bit after I'd spoken to Crystal about Anne Lowe. I'd known a bit about kind of the fact that she designed Jackie Kennedy's wedding dress and that's all I knew. Discovering the letter that she sent to Jackie Kennedy was really beautiful, a bit kind of heartbreaking, where she was like, can you just admit that it was me? Can you give me the recognition that I deserve? That was a really wonderful discovery for me. A, because it was like, oh, she had the opportunity to like stand up for herself and challenge the behaviour. But given that it never actually happened, i.e. she wasn't given the credit in her lifetime that she deserved, it was kind of bittersweet. One surprise as I was doing my research was about um, Zelda Wynne-Vouds. So like, usually during Black History Month, um, there's always some article being like, people you didn't know. And they'll be like, Zelda Wynne-Vouds designed the Playboy outfit. And she didn't, actually. And I find that really funny. She was involved um, with the Playboy team, and I think she made the outfits that had been designed. She was one of the seamstresses involved. But she didn't actually design the outfit. And what I found interesting about that mistake is that it, I find it difficult to believe that it would have been made around white design icon. And it's the fact that people don't take the time or the effort to fully understand the contribution of black designers. And whether or not that's them overinflating what happened or them underestimating what happened, it wasn't given enough attention and the detail wasn't there. Now You See Me, it's a bold title. It's a definite major theme of this book, of course, is visibility. What do you hope for takeaway for people is outside of the black space? What do you hope for people who are not part of that takeaway from Now You See Me? I think the point is that these designers and these themes are important to the creative sector overall. So anyone who is interested in the creative space or works in the creative space, I think it's useful to understand how black design has been incorporated into our world like historically and now. I want them to use it ideally, and this is everyone, whether or not you're a black creative or white creative, or like I said, someone interested in the space, is to use it as a springboard to do more exploration and to see and understand that there are gaps in our knowledge and those gaps are detrimental to us all. 
right? Like if you're excited about the the full scope of the creative world, then black people have played a significant role in that. And seeing their work, understanding their work, understanding their intention is like a positive force for anyone's creative practice, be you black or white, or just wanting to understand what the practice stems from. That was Charlene Prempe in conversation with Steph Chungu. Now You See Me, published by Prestel, is out in all good bookstores now. Despite only recently celebrating its first birthday, the women's wear label Form is thriving. Led by creative director Paul Helbers, whose resume includes roles at Margiela, Louis Vuitton and The Row, Form has become known for its architectural shapes and flowing garments. Paul joined Monocle's fashion editor, Natalie Theodosi, down the line from his New York studio. They talked about his career to date, which includes work in a clothing store, and previewed Form's newest collection. I think it's very important to see how people dress and what their habits are. Working in a shop, you see how men and women shop very differently. Also, you get clients, you need to dress them. The shop where I was working was quite fashionable. It was kind of cheaper translations of the then big designers like Jean-Paul Gaultier, Yamamoto. It was very colorful. It was mostly produced in India and in Turkey. But it was very creative. It was playful. And I learned a lot from looking at what people wear, how they dress, but also having to find solutions on the spot and dressing them. And also thinking about how the shop had new drops every week. And every week we had to fit them in and we had to make color stories. So by merchandising, you get a sense of how collections are built off and that they're building blocks. And also you get a sense of what is exciting. I guess it was my first encounter with the industry. And I think it, it's valuable and it's important to have a clear picture in your head who you are designing for. At the time, the fashion was very different. People were butterflies makeup above their eyes and people were smoking in the shops and listening to Susie and the Benches. It, it was a wonderful experience and I think it formed me both like becoming curious but also the reality of selling and and customers. And it sounds like also you're going against a lot of current industry waves, especially that obsession with renewal. Is that the aim with Form to to create, like you say, a library of signatures and shapes and to keep revisiting them rather than thinking about seasons and new collections every few months or every year? That's absolutely what we're trying to do. We build on the library that we have. It's not rooted in trends or in trying to to run after trends. It's really the beauty of simple things. Inspiration for me comes from retreat. It comes from silence. I see silence as a strength. What comes to my mind with your question is the word enoughness and meaning there is enough in the world. There is enough uh, for factories to be busy with. A small, really well-studied collection can create many different looks and many different outfits because they're studied and they're modular and the shapes work with each other. It gives you the possibility to express. It's a thoughtful approach to timelessness. It's an expressive, unconventional way to do essentials. Wear whatever you want, whenever you want. And then to arrive at simple and sumptuous clothes, rich in techniques, sculptured 
engineer, but also really resolve. So meaning there's a big focus on functionality. And I think that provokes a transformation of how we dress. It's really about garments and it's liberating because women can dress in it and be themselves. And then it becomes a subversion of power dressing. And and for me, those are really always have been the motivations to be in in this industry, really working in a very physical way with my hands and in a very 3D way. And then trying to to do something that is both beautiful and liberating. It's really interesting. It's exactly what you're saying, a transformation of how we dress, but also how we approach clothing and, and consuming. I feel like your clothes are clothes that look good on the body that need to be experienced physically. But you're doing that at a time where we're still living in a very image driven world, in a very digital world. Is that a challenge or do you find that there is enough people that have become more open to um, consuming in, in a slower, more considered way and, and discovering quality and, and pieces like yours in, in the real world? It's a challenge to when you're a startup and you have to communicate on something simple and something detailed. And I think especially in combination with a certain price level that we have, that you have to pay for the quality that we bring nowadays, photography is really so advanced and there's so many good photographers that for a final consumer, you don't always see the difference between a quality garment and a less quality garment because the image is so well done. It's important for us to go out and to create collaborations and to become a platform for women and a stage to do collaborations with female artists, with women that we feel have a a role that they can be proud of and that we are proud of to share with the world, creating an honest community and trying to communicate and let people touch the clothes and, and create moments. And of course, a fashion show is one of them where people can see the clothes on the body moving. That's really when where their quality comes out. And it's a combination of doing wholesale, working together very closely with a very selective list of wholesale clients that we want to build it up with. And that's what we've been starting to do since two seasons with success. Then it's up to people to try things on. And so people have to also find out what size works for them. And you kind of have to just try it on and look and say to yourself, I'm going to go one size down, even if that's not the size that I normally wear, but it looks better on you. Learn to appreciate the joy that there is in how you can dress and how you can match and how you can layer it and how you can keep it very simple or make stronger, complicated, layered looks according to your personality. Amazing. And tell me also, I mean, it's still the first few seasons, but have you managed to identify different silhouettes or shapes that have started to become form signature and clients are leaning towards? Our shapes, there's kind of a contrast of elevated and casual pieces in the mix. And we feel that the clients really respond to that. They're lines that are inspired by the body, but infused with abstract volumes 
And it's really focusing on the beauty of movement and ease, how it feels when you wear it, it kind of shows the beauty of the body, although it's covering the body. We've done distorted t-shirt shapes that look quite flat on a hanger, but then when you wear them, they drape on the body. There is various shapes that from the beginning that now are sort of part of our language, the way they distort or the way they create volume. That library of shapes is growing and it's also a learning process because when we go out to market and people wear it. It's like, again, when I was in the shop when I was 16, you learn from what people say, you learn from how they dress, and, and you can always improve. It's really about creating, improving, reshaping. But as we go forward, the collection tends to grow. We're introducing different techniques, pleating, draping, tailoring, holding and releasing volumes. And indeed, this aesthetic can be configured and reconfigured in endless arrangements. We kind of have probably 10 to 15 styles that we know work really well, but we constantly try to rebalance that and improve and look at fabrications and fabrics. And the beauty of having a library of shapes is that the shapes are so studied, we can produce a same shape in a very lightweight silk or a very stiff cashmere or padded with down feathers. And these shapes hold up because they are so balanced and so studied. For instance, we have a, a sort of jacket, which is called the Viv jacket. It's a colorless jacket with buttons and a concealed fastening. And it has a very beautiful sort of semi kimono sleeve construction. And we've done it in denim. We've done it in cashmere. And that's a good example. And we keep, and we're doing it now in a furry boucle stitch knit for the coming winter. And these, this is still the same shape. And we know that shape is very popular. And there's endless and endless studies and arrangements that we can do with that same shape. That was Paul Helbers in conversation with Natalie Theodosi. We'll be back in just a moment. Finally on today's show, Martin Brudnitsky. He's a Swedish interior and product designer with studios in London and New York. Since establishing his namesake firm in 2000, Martin has built a reputation for delivering outstanding hospitality projects with a portfolio that includes the Splendido in Portofino, the Beekman in New York and Cheekies in Mexico. He's also behind And Objects, a furniture and homewares brand which recently opened its first retail space on Pimlico Road in London. To find out more about his hospitable approach to design, Martin joined me in our London studio. I want to unpack a few of your recent projects, but I think perhaps before we dive into that, and, and we were talking a little bit off air about this, is the fact that when talking about your work, you, you kind of describe it as a series of systems rather than an aesthetic that's, I guess, pulled across every single project. How did you come to that realisation? How did you develop that way of working? Oh, from years and years and years of working and doing a lot of projects where you're sort of trying to find a process how you actually should design and how what sort of works for us. And uh, what we sort of say, what we try to do in our hospitality work is to create experiences. How do you approach that or think about that? Are you, are you thinking about how the space is going to be programmed, how people want to use it, or, or is there something more? 
there's a sort of structure to it. It's, I mean, it starts always with the layout, because through the layout you can control people's movement, what people are supposed to do, if it's supposed to be a clear and, and sort of obvious route, or if you want to create some awkwardness. Sometimes we like to design design into the layout awkwardness because it's part of the whole, you know, approach that the client would like to achieve, which is sort of quite fun. And then on top of that, you sort of then have the sort of structure of the interior architecture, where, you know, if, as I sort of said in a little pre-chat, is if you would remove all finishes from our product or projects, you would be left with this uh, line drawing. And they're very similar if you look between projects, because we have a certain way of approaching it, but we dress it all differently. I mean, can you give us some examples? Perhaps maybe this is a nice way to bring in a recently finished project of yours. It's, it's the Vespa Bar at the Dorchester in London. How did you, I guess, how did you build a narrative around it that sits within the street, within the city, within you know, its broader context? But the Vespa Bar in the Dorchester was a very exciting project because the Dorchester opened up in the 1930s, or it opened up in 1930. And uh, when they opened the hotel, they uh, commissioned a book called A Man Comes to London. And I can't remember the author's name, but the illustrator was Cecil Beaton. And then sort of started to look at that whole movement of the bright young things of the time, as well looking at what happened in interior design. And you had Sirimon, which was the sort of grand dam of the modern interior, but everything was like pickled. All the sort of mahogany furniture was painted white or pickled. And uh, they sort of dressed, painted the walls white and put lots of mirror up, etc., etc. So that was just like so avant-garde. So we basically took all of these elements, these sort of stories of Cecil Beaton, you know, Oliver Messel, who is actually a big part of this hotel already, uh, Sirimon, and we sort of created basically the Vespa bar. So it's almost like what we usually do, we sort of looked back to be able to look forward. I want to jump from, I guess, these hospitality spaces, these public space facing spaces to residential projects. What are some of the similarities between designing, I guess, hospitality spaces and, and designing homes? But it is similar, very similar in a sense that when you create the narrative, it's actually you talk to one person and it's really very much guided by them. But around this, of course, it's the same sort of approach. It's like you look at the building. If it's the ground up, new building, what's the style of the building? Is it, is it sort of done in a classical style? Is it a modern building? All of those elements sort of will help you sort of start sort of understanding what, what the style sort of should be. And the client, of course, has a big deal in this because they need to tell us, I'm not going to live there, they're going to live there, you're creating it for them. So it's sort of very important that you have this continual discussion, which we sort of have. Are you also, I mean, obviously you're talking about their, their lifestyle and the way that they want to live as well. Does that impact, I guess, the programming in terms of what sort of spaces you might include or is it also how they might move through those spaces? Exactly. It's very much that that we need to understand what is it that they need to live. And then we will sort of, through our experience, figure out how actually you should move between those spaces. And we will work on that and then we sort of really review it with the client and then they usually tweak it. 
man, det är sort of this whole thing man sort of learn from the past, you know, if if there's a, a married couple and the husband gets up before the wife, this is sort of quite important. He gets up, goes into the bathroom, closes that door. He should never have to go back through the bedroom, needs it from the bathroom into the dressing room and then out into the corridor, separate down the store. All of these sort of elements are sort of important. Some clients might not even think about that, but we will bring these sort of different solutions to the table to improve their lives. I think that's a, that's a perfect example. As, as an early riser myself, I think I could really benefit <laughs> from that. Uh, I, I want to ask maybe, you know, for, for some of our listeners, you're a busy man. You're, it's hard to commission you. It's, it's competitive. Somebody that can't commission you and has to settle for somebody else. What sort of questions should they be asking their interior architect? I think they should ask them about what we've just been talking about. What, what is their process? How do they actually, how would they approach the project? I think that's sort of quite important because then from that, the client can understand if they would feel comfortable in working in that manner. I guess moving from designing for other people, in a way designing for yourself and objects, I guess your range of furniture and homewares, is that a fair description of it? That is very true. So we started... Uh, or I started that with my business partner, Nick Jeans, in 2015. And uh, and as of uh, this week, actually, we opened our new shop. This is perfect, perfect little segue. I mean, how do you approach designing your own shop, your own space? And, and I guess, you know, it's not quite hospitality. You're, you're more in the retail mm. here. What thought process and how do you treat yourself as a client? goes into creating this? So first of all, when we do the furniture collection or product collection, it's exactly the way I approach any other project is a narrative. We figure out first, what is it that we're going to do? Because I like to, in everything that I do, sort of create that box of things in it that I'm allowed to work with. I don't like to sort of say, oh, the world is my oyster. I can do whatever I want because it will not be good. You need to have restrictions. And I think you can be more creative that way. It's much more interesting. My thanks to Martin Brudnitsky there. And that's all for today's show. For more design stories, listen to our five-minute midweek bonus show, Monocle on Design Extra, which airs on Thursdays. And if you enjoy print, then do pick up a copy of Monocle magazine as well. It's on all good newsstands now. Today's episode was produced by May Lee Evans and Steph Chungu, who also edited the show. I'm Nick Manise, and you can reach me on nm at monocle.com. Thanks for listening.